Good morning. Thank you for that very kind welcome and introduction. Uh, when I'm not doing other things like being a husband and father and grandfather, um, in order to keep my wife in the standard of comfort to which she's become accustomed, I, I work as a lawyer. And back in the summer of 2020, I received a phone call and invited, was I, to a meeting not far from here to a sporting organization in the world of soccer. Some people call it football. And what had happened, you might remember that year, was that the pandemic had arrived. There were closures and shutdowns. And a number of the matches that had been arranged for that season could not be played. They had been cancelled. So as the season came to an end, there was the tricky question of what to do about the unplayed games and the impact upon the leagues and the awarding of cups and all that goes with it. So I was taken to a very smart boardroom not far from here. And after the polite introductions, I said, gentlemen, because there were no ladies present, I'm disappointed to say, but I said, gentlemen, there are two things you need to know about me. Number one, I know nothing about football. Number two, I care even less. <laughs> now, you laugh. They wanted to, I don't know what they wanted to do, but they, they were polite, and there was an awkward silence. That's the only way to describe it, until one of them said, well, that's probably a good thing because football people are passionate about their teams and football people are partisan. And so if you don't care, then that's probably an advantage. So I asked for the rule book and we got the rule book out so that we could plan a strategy as to what to do for this unusual situation in which we found ourselves. But that partisan spirit in sport is not just common, it's expected. And the same is true in politics. But in the church, that partisan, passionate spirit for your team, it jars, or it should, because it does not belong. It is foreign to the nature of God's new united family. And yet although it should not be, throughout church history, God's people have divided and split and organized themselves into party teams and spirits. Today, the, the big problem we face across the Western church is what has been called celebrity church leaders. There is, in America, a, a writer called Kathleen Beatty, and she's written a book which has a long title, but it gives the, the clue away in the title. It's called Celebrities for Jesus. How personas, platforms, and prophets are hurting the church. And her big point is really this, that celebrity is not a neutral tool. She says it's a cunning animal intent on tearing the church limb from limb. It's time to let it go. And in that plea for us to detox from celebrity 
church leaders, she is echoing what we're going to read now in the passage that has been assigned to us, the first 17 verses of chapter 1 of the letter to the Corinthians. Jim Crooks did a magnificent introduction to the whole letter last week, and if you haven't heard that yet, I recommend that you tune into that. But it falls to me to look at the first 17 verses, and if you've got a Bible, then I ask you to turn to it, and if you don't have one with you, you might find close at hand, as I did, this magnificent Pew Bible. It's the ESV, which is good, because that's what I'm going to be reading from, and if you're looking for the page, it's page 952, page 952 in the Pew Bible. It's the first 17 verses of the letter. This is God's word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Pause. Sanctified is set apart for God, made holy. So he's saying these people are God's church in that city of Corinth and they are already in a relationship with God that he says, you have been set apart, made holy for God. He goes on, called to be saints, and saints comes from the same idea. It's not just for the super elite, the SAS of the church. The saints are God's name for all his people who are brought into relationship with himself. Saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pause. What Paul is doing here is putting down time markers for God's people. There are events that have happened in the recent past, the arrival of God the Son in flesh, the incarnation of the Son of God, Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived, who died, who was buried, who rose again, who ascended to heaven, and who is waiting to come back. And this is the message that Paul has already shared with these people in the city of Corinth, this career, this magnificent achievement of the Lord Jesus. And he says, when he comes back, that will be the end, and that's when the judgment happens. When the Lord Jesus returns, it will not be as some meek, mild figure. It will be as the magnificent judge of the world. And you, he says, you people I'm writing to, at that time, you will be declared guiltless. Verse 9, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So far, so good. And if I were to stop there, you would think things are pretty rosy with this group of God's people. They have been brought into relationship. They are promised that at the end, they will be declared guiltless. 
They will be sustained to the end so they don't have to worry about being in relationship with God and then falling out of relationship with God. But, as Jim explained last week, there were problems in this church. And if you were just to look at the problems, you would have written them off. So here we come to the first problem, the one that we're looking at today, of partisan spirit. This is how he describes it in verses 10 and following. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he has a little senior moment, and he remembers. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of God. Before we understand the solution, we have got to understand the problem that he was facing. So let's look at the presenting problem. It's very simple. There's a party spirit that is godless, that is alien, doesn't fit with God's new family. But why? Well, there are various reasons suggested. It, it doesn't seem to be a, a division over principles or theology as such. He doesn't take time to correct their, their doctrine. It's their practice, what they were doing that was wrong, rather than what they were teaching. Although, as we'll see, their bad practice flowed out of a misunderstanding of the truth. There might have been some elements of class division and socioeconomic distinctions. We see that later on in the letter, in chapter 11 when he describes the, the abuse of the communion meal. There were some who were coming in a hurry from work and didn't have really enough to eat and were hungry at the communion service, which was meant to be a, a church family meal. And there were others who had the Fortnum and Mason hampers delivered by the servants, and they were tucking in. And Paul explains that there were those who had lots to eat and there were those that were hungry. There were class divisions within the church, but that doesn't seem to be the big point here. It seems that it was really the problem of personality cults. I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul. Now, this was a reflection of the culture in which they lived. The, the Roman culture of this city and its Greek culture was built around a system of patronage. If you were a young man 
wanting to get on in the world, you would identify a patron, some big character, some prominent, successful business person or politician, and you would go and become a client of the patron. And he would advise you as to career choices, and you would be his ears and eyes in the world around in the city. And the, the, the master, the patron, would have many, many clients who would come and report to him, and he would guide them, and he would help them. And it becomes a network where to get on, you've got to join one of these networks and you've got to play your part of promoting the patron and helping others in the network. And that was the culture all around them. They were used to that. And that culture, which was how the city worked, how its politics, its business, its commerce worked, had now infiltrated the church so that you have groups who are clumbing around big names. So one of them we mention here is, is Apollos. If you go to Acts 18, you'll find that he was a, a native of Alexandria, a very sophisticated cultured city. He was described there as a, a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Hebrew Bible. So one of the, the groups picks him and says, we really esteem this man Apollos. He's a wonderful, eloquent, powerful speaker. He's an apologist of the highest order. He's the sort of person that you would set up a, an institute and name it after him, promoting apologetics. That's Apollos. And others say, well, we like Cephas. Cephas? Who's Cephas? Well, Cephas is the original name, don't you know, of Peter. And Peter was one of the original disciples of the Lord Jesus, and he was the one who walked on the water. I don't think Apollos ever did that. Jesus invited him out of the boat, and Peter walked on the water. And Peter was there at the Garden of Gethsemane, and yes, I know that he took a sword out and he cut a man's ear off, but the Lord fixed that. And, and Peter was the one that the Lord said was the, the rock. He's the original rocky of the church. He's the foundation stone. He's the, he was the one who, on the day of Pentecost, he was the one chosen by God to be the, the spokesperson at the very first Christian sermon. I'm with the group that really esteems and admires Peter or Cephas to those of us in the know. And others said, well, Paul's the one I would want to hitch my wagon to. He, after all, is the one who brought us the message of Christ. The good old days. Do you remember when we first came to faith and the way it was? We were small in number. We were compact. We weren't as prominent and weren't as successful as church as we are now. But Paul was the man who brought us the original message, and I'm with Paul because, after all, he is not much to look at, but he's a very fine writer, and he's a smart dude. He is really someone who's going places. If I would warrant that he'll end up writing half of the New Testament scriptures. They might have thought correctly. And then there were others who said, all of you are really getting carried away with these big names and big personalities. I'm one of those super spiritual people who say, I'm with Christ. And I've got a special VIP 
access to Christ himself, and I don't need to get caught up in these manifestos and these politics and these groupings and these divisions. That's the problem. The church was breaking up into these fanboy groups, fangirl groups, for these big names. So that's the problem. How do we diagnose it? What's wrong? Well, as Jim explained last week to you, incisively and, and correctly, what Paul does not do is simply say, you're wrong, don't do that. He does say that, but he gives reason for it. And the reason he gives is he draws us back to the nature of the gospel and the character of God's family. And in this section, I'm going to suggest to you that they really had made three critical mistakes. First of all, they had misunderstood the nature, the character of God's family being one united family, made up of different personalities and different elements and different sorts of people, but it's one family, and it's one united family. And they'd overlooked what we share with everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. You see that in verse 2. So he says in verse 2 that this is addressed to the church of God, God's church, that happens to be in a particular geographical place called Corinth. But not only there, it's along with everyone who calls on his name everywhere. So the genius of God's organization of his people is that he has outposts in all sorts of towns, cities, right across the world, but it's one united family, the local church as part of the universal church. And they were forgetting that. They were mistaking their little factions for the family of God. Secondly, they had overlooked what I drew attention to in the reading, that they were sanctified and called to be saints. And when you probe into that, what he's saying is this. You're sanctified in Christ Jesus. The one who saved you is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not Paul, not Apollos, not Cephas, not anyone else you care to mention. The one who called you and takes the place of being your master, your Lord, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, already in the first few verses, he's saying, don't you realize that the community that you've been brought into is God's universal family with local expressions? And it is centered on who the Lord Jesus is and what he has done for every single member of his family. You don't get into the family unless you come and have that personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ where he forgives you and calls you and equips you and fills you with his spirit. But once you have that experience, that experience is the same it's common to everyone in the family anywhere in the world throughout time. So the first mistake they made was to misunderstand the character of God's united family rooted in 
opened up by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving death at the cross, his victorious resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and his promise to return. Once you take him out of the focus and out of the center, you start to get into difficulties, says Paul. The second thing that failed to understand was the gracious provision that God makes to every member of his family. Verses 4 to 9. Everyone, even in Corinth, is indebted to the grace of God as we wait for the return of Christ. And that can be said of every follower of Christ throughout church history, anywhere in the world. We are the recipients of God's grace. We have all we need because of the grace of God as we wait for his return. So in verse 9, you're in fellowship. The fellowship, this bond, this unity is with God's Son. Verse 7, you have the spiritual gifts that God knows you need in order to operate as his family. And verse 8, God will sustain you to the end. All of these things that you have are from God, his rich, gracious, generous provision, but they're not peculiar to you in your little group following Apollos or Cephas. These are the blessings that every follower of Christ has anywhere in the world throughout history. And the third mistake they'd made, it seems you'll find at verse 17, is about the nature of the gospel and service or ministry in the gospel. The power of the gospel, he says in verse 17, isn't found in wisdom or eloquence. He goes on in chapters 3 and 4 to pick up this theme. That these great leaders that they're following are only servants. He calls them God's fellow servants. Not that they are fellow with God, not equal to God, but they are fellow servants under God. Chapter 4, he makes the point that they are gifted because God has given them the gift. So the people that they have raised up and elevated, put on this pedestal, are at best servants, fickle, human, subject to error at times, none of them infallible. They're servants of God. And the power of the gospel isn't located in Paul's intellect, giant though it was, nor in Apollo's gift of argumentation, logical presentation, eloquence, stunning as it was. Nor was it in the experience that Peter had where he could say, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. The part of the gospel is not rooted in the experience, the intellect, or the eloquence of the messenger. The part of the gospel is found in the person of Christ. And only in the person of Christ, who he is, what he accomplished, and how he graciously then provides gifts and leaders and servants and messengers who go out into the world, whether it was the first century Mediterranean or the 21st century world of social media, to share the good news message of the gospel. They are, at best, 
servants of God, equipped by God, no reason to boast about a gift. Whoever boasts about a Christmas gift that you got? Aren't I clever because I've got this gift? The gift isn't a reflection of you. The gift is a reflection of the gift. And so he says, you've misunderstood. You've elevated these people because they've got gifts into imagining something that they're not. So if that's the diagnosis, and those are their three mistakes about God's family and God's gracious provision and ministry and the gospel, what's the prescription? Well, it's a return to Christ. Verse 13, he appeals to them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see in verse 10, to agree, have the same mind and judgment. Let's be clear about this. This is a a call for harmony, not a call for uniformity. This is a call to recognize that God's family is more like an orchestra than a flute band. In a flute band or a pipe band, everyone's got one instrument, the same instrument. It's a flute. And you play your flute. And everyone marches along playing the flute. And some people have a taste for it. Some people even have a taste for bagpipes as a band. I can never understand it myself. But all the instruments are the same and everyone's playing or trying to play the same tune. That's not the image here. He's not saying, I want all of you to be little carbon cutouts, cookie cutouts of the leaders of your church, all to be a little David Farrell or a little Jim Crooks, perish the thought. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am calling for harmony, the harmony of a magnificent orchestra. Lots of different instruments. From the triangle, which was always my aspiration, I thought if I ever had a chance of getting into an orchestra, it was that, but I think the timing would have defeated me. To the the kettle drums, the big noisy things, the tiny little noise of the triangle that can be heard over everything else. The violins, the wind, all of them coming together to produce a sound that is magnificent, harmonious, united. They're playing the same piece. They're playing their part. They're all contributing to that magnificent anthem that rises up. And so it is harmony, not mere uniformity. That's what he's calling for. But it's centered, you'll notice, in verse 13, on the person of the Lord Jesus and his cross. Brothers and sisters, we must never, ever, ever get far from the cross. And the way Paul does it here is he he uses some biting questions to show the absurdity of their position. Tell me, he says, is Christ divided? If there is one united family of God, which is what I'm suggesting is clear from this passage, If you split up into little groups and war with each other, what you're really saying is that Christ is somehow cut up, that someone has taken a knife, a butcher's knife, and divided him up. Is Christ divided? Of course not. There is only one Christ. He draws attention then to the central event. Who was crucified? Was it any of these heroes? 
In whose name were you baptized? It was in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he does is he brings them back to the heart, which is always where we've got to come to. The person, the work, the achievement, just as we celebrated earlier this morning, the bread reminding us of the body, the incarnation, the real historical fact that the Son of God put on skin so that he could show us what he's like not shouting from a distance, not giving us propositions, but coming and lifting a child onto his knee. Going through a crowd and finding people who were in need of his touch of healing. Having time for the, the marginalized, the disgraced, the outcasts. Bringing teaching, using that voice in that body to communicate the truth of heaven but in that body going and hanging naked as he made atonement for the sin of the world. And we took blood, symbolized, we took wine symbolizing the blood of Christ, not just his body, but his death. It wasn't enough that the Lord Jesus came in order to show us how to live, to tell us how to behave, to give us a good example. The Lord Jesus is not a great example to us, simply. Though of course he is. The Lord Jesus didn't just come to show us what God is like. He came to lay down his life, to die. It wasn't enough that he taught the truth. He had to die the death. And so Paul brings them back to this. You've been baptized. You have been associated, identified. You have nailed your colors to his mass, not to anyone else. So as we finish, let me reflect very briefly with you. You are privileged in this fellowship to belong to a, a group of people who uphold the principles of God's word and his truth and who practice it with seriousness and in the power of the Spirit seek to be a witness to the community around. And long may that be so. And if you're involved in this fellowship of God's people, then get involved, be involved, play your part in God's family here. But this is only one expression of God's family in this city and in this country. And around the world, there are many, many others meeting today as part of the same united family, and we need to recognize that. And there are times whenever we need to be in prayerful support for them and practical support for them. So we need to both recognize and practice the local and the universal church of God. Secondly, we need to always, always keep Christ at the center, given who he is and what he's done. So that when the temptation arises to run after some new teaching, some new teacher, some new fashionable leader, we ask, is this honoring to Christ? Is this consistent with my loyalty to him? And we must always keep the gospel central, the cross, not the celebrity or personality of the speaker, the preacher, the messenger. Miss Beattie that I quoted from earlier, she puts it this way. 
Obscurity may well be the spiritual discipline the church most needs to practice in the next 100 years. To detox from the effects of celebrity and preserve the countercultural message of Christianity. Recapturing a vision of the Christian life that begins and ends with what Lewis, C.S. Lewis called creating little Christs. The mission God has for each of his people in his family is that we become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That the family resemblance grows and deepens as we follow him. And as we go out into the world around us, whatever that might mean on a Monday for you, wherever that might be, at home or outside of the home, wherever that is, that you are the representative of the risen, returning Lord Jesus in that place to those people. That's the calling that he has for each of us. And of course, it's beyond us, which is why we need the indwelling Spirit of God to equip us, to empower us, to enable us to become more like the Lord Jesus and to bear witness to him wherever he places us. There's nothing new in this. If I've said anything to you today that is new to you, I'd be surprised, and your leaders will be very shocked. But sometimes we need to be reminded of the things that we know in order that we follow them more closely and cut away the, the moss and the, the growth that attaches to the things that we know to be true and central in order that we might keep the Lord Jesus Christ central, at the forefront, lifted high. That's what he calls you to do tomorrow morning. Can I pray with you just as we finish? Father God, we thank you that you take us seriously. You don't simply shout from a distance. You don't simply give us a set of rules to follow. You give us your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our savior. You give us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to sanctify us, to make us like the Lord Jesus and to empower us to live for him. Help us to be faithful to him. Help us to esteem him, to remove all the little idols and tin pot heroes that we put in place and to keep the Lord Jesus Christ central in our hearts. To the glory of his name we ask it. Amen.